0: Hi, my name Rhoda Dakar, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness Podcast. Hi there, folks. I'd like you me, Tommy is
1: Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Laurie, along with my co-host Polly. Here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Hello, stateside madness. Welcome to another exciting episode. I am so thrilled. And who we've got in the studio today. But do you want to say hi, Polly?
0: Uh, sure. Hi, Stateside <laughs> Madness. And yeah, Lori is is thrilled. You can probably tell. Uh, because, yeah, go I've, ahead. I've,
1: I've been working on trying to get him in for, what, a good seven, eight months, I think?
0: I would think so, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're talking, of course, of the bed and breakfast man himself, Mr. John Hassler. And uh, we have a... Uh, He'll be coming into the studio shortly and talking to us, not just about his days with Madness, but also some of the other really cool projects that he's been involved with.
0: Alright, Madness fandom, so you'll know our guest, uh, particularly if you watched Take It or Leave It, but if you're just in the know, you will recognize John Hasler as...
2: The Bed and Breakfast Man.
0: The Bed and Breakfast Man, yeah, so the original uh, singer for North London Invaders, you've got a long history with the Madness guys, and everybody's dying to hear about it, so welcome John.
2: Thank you, Polly. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: Happy to do so. Laurie, why don't you kick things off with each other?
1: Okay, so I, I guess let's kind of start at the beginning here. How did you fall in with this uh, rather motley group of young lads?
2: <laughs> uh, by just an uh, sort of accident, I guess. Um, I knew I knew Lee from back in... Before the band was going, uh, he he had a little sabbatical away, at um, a private school for a little while. I don't know how much you know about the, the history of the band there, but uh, so I knew him before he before that happens. Um, we, we used to go underage drinking in a in a bar together. Then cut a few years forwards, and I'd decided I wanted to be in a band. Um, I would got as far as buying myself an electric guitar, a real cheap knock-up, cheap copy. And this was in the days of punk, and, and decided that uh, yeah, I could be in a band because before that it was it was the reserve of had the music kids, the ones that were really really tutored and uh, knew knew all their stuff and could read music and write it, and they played in the prog rock stuff and that was what you thought I never thought I could be in a band and then Paul came along and told everyone no no rip up that rule but anyone could be in a band so I thought yeah yeah okay so I had this guitar um Lee found out one night he said oh you've got a guitar would you like to be in my band I said yeah okay so I went along and uh, we were practicing in the little church hall um the in, in, in W5 and um, I was so we had two guitarists and a sax player and a keyboard player um, I could like play a 12 bar blues that was about it and I taught Chris how to play a 12 bar blues because um, we were all we were all really really well apart from Mike who knew what he was doing a bit but the rest of us were pretty green amateur with a very large array.
1: so you were you were really building on that do-it-yourself punk ethos that was so totally. big in the late 70s
2: totally yeah that was that was um, we weren't into playing the music but it was the, yeah it was it was the belief that you could do it so not long after we, we we had a few rehearsals make I got awful racket um, and we were around at Mikey's house and his brother was in the band and they were set up in the front room and all their equipment was out and um, I just had a little tryout on the drums which was sitting there and Mike said, Hey, you're not bad at that. And you know, we got two guitars, we haven't got a drummer, so why don't you be the drummer? And yeah, you know, okay, fine. And I borrowed borrowed sixty pounds off my dad. I bought a drum kit from a kid at school.
1: You really were the original drummer for the band, then. That's awesome. I was,
2: I was the original drummer for the band. Yes, um, but you,
1: you've also worn a number of other hats.
2: I certainly had, yeah, yeah.
1: I believe you were the singer at one time.
2: I was, I was, yeah. We kind of broke up, um, and band split up um, over I going to football rather than rehearsal. When Malik saw Mike, he was f- playing with another band. Uh, and I'd just gone to see him. he was hanging about for waiting for them to turn up for other so. and at that point in the, in the first lineup, we had I had written a couple of songs for the band and that's before up to then we just played covers of, other, of the other songs so I'd written a few songs um so I said, well look, since you write the songs the lyrics, why don't you try being a singer?" yeah okay i'll try being the singer um so i did and we did that for a while um it's quite a different sound then some i mean the, the one that did sneak through was the, f- the very first song i wrote the very first band that song with the balance was a, an original madness number which was mistakes ended up on the b-side of the uh, uh, uh i want to step beyond but um
1: I think we have a little bit of a snippet of you singing on an early version of Mistake. So I'm going to play a little bit of that. Uh, Okay. All right.
2: Uh, And some other bits of pieces of songs crept into, and were incorporated. And other songs.
1: But could I ask you uh, a question about your songwriting? So, um, yeah, I have always wondered the song "Believe Me," yeah, which I know that you co-wrote with Mike Barson. Yeah, is that about a particular person or incident, or is that like?
2: It's difficult. It's more the thing is uh, that. When it, when it says co-wrote it's a side written which, when I was singing with the bands which Mike then took bits of and they wrote his own bits so um so it is about a person but not all that I suspect it's about two different people
1: okay so like kind of an amalgamation of what you wrote and what it's an yeah. amalgamation. okay yeah.
2: It's yeah if that makes sense yeah that's it
1: yeah that makes sense
2: So yeah, then, then I mean I did that for a while, and it was we were we were playing like played the school, school um, bop, and uh, a few youth clubs and playing around a bit. Um, moderate success, you know. We we, we went down well, with small but dedicated audience, and and then I went away on holiday, and while I was away, they got offered a gig. Um, quite a prestigious one that they didn't feel they could turn down, and they didn't know how to do it, so they had to turn to Suggs Say, hey, can you deck for for John because he's away, and he did, and it went down very well. And then they made the decision that they might stick with that lineup. So that was the end of my end of my singing career.
1: You were the one that introduced Suggs to the band, weren't you? Originally, that
2: is correct. Yes, yes. Through a girlfriend right at the time, we knew him. and said, "I think this guy would be good for singing." So, or a little.
1: And I kind of get the feeling that you actually introduced a lot of the players. It seems like every story somehow you're connected to it or at the center of it. Like yeah, you were the, yeah. the hub bringing everybody together.
2: Well, so sort of, I mean, Lee, Mike, and and Chris were friends. From way back, um, so they were one sort of side to the band. But then I, I, I originally brought Chaz, Carl Smith, aka Chaz Smash. Um, I brought him in when I was started drumming with the band, and I I just could see these three guys were quite a tight unit, and I felt a bit on my own, so I brought a friend along for a bit of moral support, and uh, he started out playing bass guitar. He didn't really take to it, but um, that, that, was, that was how I got Chaz originally involved. Um, and then when I was singing to the band, I got a guy I'd known from school, Gary, to come along and play the drums. And it was then through Gary that um, Mark Bedford, Bedders, became involved.
1: And that was Gary Dovey, right?
2: Gary Dovey, yes. Sadly, no longer with us, but um, yeah. Gary, I mean, he was a good drummer, but he was the wrong shit for the bands, you know. But yeah, so Gary, Gary brought Mark in, so indirectly I brought Mark through as well. Then Mark brought in. So it's a kind of it's a fluid connections, but yeah.
1: So it's not an exaggeration to say there would not be Madness without John Hassler.
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. I think there would have been a band with Lee, Chris, and Mike, possibly. I don't know, maybe not. I mean, it was, you know, I can't say full credit, but I've certainly, I, I certainly played my part, that's for sure.
0: And as the band really, uh, you know, came around into their, what we would call potentially the the classic lineup, they didn't exactly take you to the curb altogether. You still remained pretty close with them and were involved with the band. Yeah, well, yes. Even though you had moved out of having a, a functional position as one of the, the musicians,
2: Yep, yep. Well, what happened was, um, so once the band had got its final to line-up together, and, you know, these things, it's, it's about chemistry, and it went, with that lineup up it just clicked. Um, and with great bands like Madness, it's always that the, the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. And, that, that, and they really worked like that. And so they um, they got a gig at the Dublin, they talked themselves into a gig at the Dublin Castle. Which wasn't a real proper music venue then. Um they did the odds little event but it wasn't what it was. And that's when they bit in the film where they which was true where they went along and told the manager of the public house that they played jazz. it's um, we did do we did do a five four number. But um, so I suppose you know, at a stretch we could say we didn't play jazz but uh, yeah the, the, that was the first time at the end of the night they got money and there was suddenly we'd been paid you know which makes you proper bad what um, nobody somehow kind of trusted each other to hold on to the money which is why they asked me if I'd be their manager and uh, I said yeah okay because I I'd uh, Still love the band, didn't I? They were, they were good friends. And, um, so I started managing them. Yeah. From, from that point when we had the first paid gig.
0: Because you certainly weren't, uh, you know, the elder statesman of the group. You were their peer,
1: and they do seem a little bit unmanageable. If I'm being honest,
0: they do seem a little unmanageable. Yeah. <laughs> so was that uh, was that challenging relationship
2: wise? one um, Yes and no. I mean, it it meant I had a little motorbike at the time, and that did a lot of business, a lot of mileage going around from house to house, backwards and forwards. Um because so it was a, it was a, a diplomatic role really. And if somebody was complaining about something, I'd go and talk to them, and try and understand what it was that they where they're coming from, and then I also go back to the other people and say, well, this is what's going put my interpretation on it and basically make things like become the oil in the in the, in the engine. Really, and make things, make the cogs mesh together smoothly.
1: And that is no small feat.
2: No, no, it took it was it was full it was full time. I don't think um, you can appreciate it until you do it. What it takes to keep keep that going, despite being a marriage counselor with
1: (laughs) yeah, seven people,
2: seven people, yeah, well, (laughs) six six at the time because early days, um, Chas wasn't. Involved, right? He was off away, and it was whilst we come, we got a resident that same pub, uh, and we did the first paid gig at. They got a residency there, and it was whilst doing that residency that um, Chad started setting up and doing this MC, but and his whole role grew from that. So yeah, that was it was it was I mean was, there was some of the the technical stuff of management, the you know, the band um, keeping an up booking the geeks and keeping an eye on the diary, but a lot of it is just about making sure everybody's happy with the way things are going. And when they're not finding a way of of, of sorting that out so that they so that they are
0: so, how long did you continue on in that capacity uh, before the band maybe out, outgrew your services?
2: Um, I carried on doing that. Um, uh, We'd signed with Stiff Records. We'd done the two tone tour. Um, done a tour of the UK on their own. Uh, done a small tour in the United States. And uh, then it was not long after that. That um, things got a little bit unpleasant, really. Um, and I got ousted, and they so got in this guy who had previously worked for the record company, Sniff Records. Um, he didn't last. I wasn't surprised that he didn't last because I had to work with him. Uh, there's a bit of a collusion between him and the record company boss to get him in because I was tied with the band. And I was very much about the band's interests and about only do what they wanted, um, whereas the the record companies they always want to be able to be in control and say, right we want, we want this tour, we want this album we want it now, this happens now, this happens next, and they want to, they want to dictate how the band works. And so I was kind of a, a bit of a a block to that and there was a, a, a little campaign definitely there were some little dirty tricks which at the time I didn't see um, here's and here's a for instance every week the record company would find out in advance what the chart position of the single is so that they could then let the band know where they are in the charts um, they have to know because they had to prepare if they had to do any television appearances Um they fixed it so whenever the single had gone up in the charts this guy from the company came down and went hey good news guys we've gone up we're up to number eight and they'd go yeah all right and then next week i'll be in the office and he go oh yeah we've we've dropped down to 16 so you better let the guys know john so i'd be the one guy then going oh we've gone down <laughs> and that happens all the time and that was that was no actually um yeah there's one time when he deliberately made me very late for an important meeting with the ballads. um you know he offered me i was about to get a cab from the record company up to the offices in Camden town to meet the ballad. <laughs> and he said oh, i'll give you a lift that's don't, don't waste money on the cab i'll give you a lift and then he stopped off to do looking to look into a shop on the way I never forget it. It was in Hammersmith. It was selling Tiffany lamps He goes, I collect Tiffany lamps. I just want to see if I've got this rare one in. And he stayed, and he was in there, and he kept, and I kept, I come out the car, and I "Come on, we've got to go." And I told, one minute, one minute, and eventually, I, I just got him up on him, and did get a cab. But by the time I got there, I was, I was very late.
1: And this was pre-cell phone, so you couldn't just pick up the phone and call the band and tell them.
2: Yeah, yeah, very selfless. Couldn't, couldn't have called in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely, completely deliberate. And there's a lot of little things like that. Those are just two instances of how you can make somebody, one person, look good and the other person look bad.
1: It's so um, slimy. I'm so sorry that they did that to you.
2: Oh, uh, there's the record company. It's, um, yeah, that's, that's and, and, and I, I found that since that's, it's a very common story. Um, and, you know, the band were as green as I was. So, you know, they didn't see it either. I didn't see it. They didn't see it. And suddenly after, it was looking back.
1: Right. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, as they say.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um Uh, but it was yeah, you know, just it was a shame, but I did it was a great time, nevertheless. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, as they say. You there
1: know? you go. There you go. Could we talk a little bit? You mentioned the American tour, uh and as you might know, we're kind of the American affiliate of MIS. Yep, yep. What was that like? And because I think that was probably the first time that most of you would have been in America. Is that
2: That's correct. Co- well Mike 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 had been before. He'd done done a road trip. He'd he'd done like hired a car and driven across. He was always a bit ahead of everyone else. Uh but no, for the rest of us, yeah, first time in America. And it was a small tour, playing small clubs. Uh did we do the mud club? I think we did the mud club in New York. Um Tier three, we paid. That was the club back there. And, and we did a little small place in Boston. It's one of those clubs where it's at a restaurant upstairs and the club underneath. And uh, that's when we found out that, that, that we, we got paid on the door. But we found out that actually, if you're a restaurant customer, you got in for free. <laughs> Oh great, that's that's a good one. How come all these people are getting in down the back stairs? Oh, that's the deal, right? And um, like was yeah, it was a lot of driving around in a small van, but fascinating. It was amazing. You know, it was it was it was a, it was a different world. Uh, I was sharing a room with Mark Bedford, and we were we were sort of we were c- competing to do American things like, hey, look, I've got a TV dinner. <laughs> i've got two years and then and then he beat me like we're going out for coffee and donuts at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> which in, in in the uk back then that was um everything shut and that'll so for new york 24 hour city that was something else and i made the mistake that I went to a, a pizza place it's a little booth place and they had the different sized pizzas, and so I thought, "Oh, well, I'm quite hungry. I have the large." Oh boy, <laughs> I did not love laugh <laughs> the large was until I cut that thing came out. It barely fit through the hatch that they served through. Um Yeah, it was. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun. Good evening. Eh?
0: Couldn't have been too long after though that you are probably rung up and somebody says, Hey, so we're we're making this little movie.
2: And oh uh... yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Oh gosh, yes, now. Yeah, yeah, I did I did see them up through that movie. That's true. Initially they were gonna cover someone else to play me, and I've kind of I I think she was speaking to the guys in the band so he can't give that a not right? Well, I got to play myself in the movie. Was what some... was
1: that like?
2: That's really weird. Playing yourself in a movie doing things you only did a few years a couple of years ago. Especially when you got that costume guy going, Oh, we've got you this to wear. No, I never wore that. No, yes, you she did. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> okay, I'll wear that then. Um so yeah, yeah. Um and some of the stuff that happens in the film, it's it's it it, it helps make the story run. Better, but it's, you think well. That's not quite what happened. But anyhow, we'll we'll go along with that for the
1: for the sake of the narrative, right?
2: Yeah, sake of the paycheck. I mean, I did it really. <laughs> most... <laughs> yeah, I had, a, had a, a a very young daughter that I, no well, she was born whilst we were making it. Well, just started, oh, and no, she was born just after we made it. Was she? I can't remember now. Anyway, basically, I had a wife, I would, by the time of it, I got married, and. We had a baby, and so there was like bacon needed bringing home. I, I, I had to do that film already because I got paid to do it.
1: And what was that like seeing yourself on the big screen? I mean, was that surreal?
2: It's always very odd. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing yourself, it's always it's odd hearing yourself played back because obviously, you know, you, when, you, when you're talking, that the sound you hear is that coming around right inside your skull. It's a different sound to the sound which has been projected out. You know, similarly, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you're always just looking flat on. You never see the side view. So suddenly, to get all of the, the different sound and the different views, oh, do I really look like that? Oh my goodness! Uh, but yeah, you know, we had a bit of fun making it, and, and, and it, it's a, yeah, pretty, it's a, I'm pleased with the way it came out. You know, I think it's a good little film. It's a great just for anybody. He doesn't know anything about the band just as, as a story of a band getting together and how it happened you know, and how that, how that comes about and the kind of the journey that you go on. I think that's actually rings true for a lot of bands. It's all, it's all, eggs, all bacon, eggs, bacon, beans, beans and a fried slice. slice.
0: So, what did the remaining years of your close uh, affiliation with Madness look like? Was it much longer after that American tour?
2: Um, not long after that. It wasn't long after we got back that. Um, well, I, yeah, it ended. It ended quite badly. So I was told there was a meeting. I was a meeting ought to go to because it's where they discussing how I would work with this other guy, and on the, on the he'd been with us on that American tour. Um. He managed to worm his way on. he'd been sacked by the record company, which made him a bit more of a hero, because now he's you know, he could be present himself as yellow, I'm up against them. I'm on your side, guys. And he managed to worm his way onto that tour as a tour manager and he was he was useless. Uh, I did we didn't need it because we actually had an American tour manager. He couldn't understand why we brought a second tour manager with us. I won't go into any details about why I thought at the time. I could see from that from from that time before, that he really wasn't up to it. And why the band, I thought, well, you were there as well. You saw how, yeah, I mean, there, there was one time when he was driving us and he had to stop the car and jump past Mike Varson to drive because he couldn't manage it because he was getting the worst for wear Put it that week. You know that's horrendously unprofessional to uh, take so much substances that you can't actually drive the violence. That's not that's not a good look. But somehow he still managed. So when when they said you're going to work with him, I just I just was very upset. I thought the birds and I I just didn't turn off with the me. meeting, and that was it. Enough. So it ended quite abruptly. And then there was a couple of years really, where I didn't really. That much to do with the band, and then one day I just thought, well, No, this is this is silly. There's these guys, they're friends, um, and particularly Carl, who I've known since childhood. And I just uh, had a couple of tickets, so I was going to see Van Morrison at the festival ball. I just phoned Carl up the and the flute said, Yeah, I'd to come in to see Van Morrison with me. And he said, Yeah, I'd love to. So I did that, and um. Went to see the band next time they played, and everything was fine after that. Really, I mean, one of, one of the things around that is after we did after we did part uh, ways, um, I did have a contract of sorts with the band, uh, which were drawn up when I was negotiating the record contracts for the, with the lawyer. So I went to see a lawyer in London to say, "Well, look, you know, this has happened. This is the contract I've got. How I got anything here?" And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, yeah, you could, um, you could take them for a lot of money on this. So I, as, as, a, as a lawyer, though, I have got to say this one thing to you, though. I think this important. If you sue them, you'll never be friends with them. Anybody who's been sued will not be friends with you. I know that from experience. So you have to know that before you go ahead. And I had a decision to make, and it was like, well, a chunk of cash or friendship, and that sort of, you know, you can't buy friends, can you? So I took that decision to not pre- not proceed in the court or anything like that, which would have been uh, trying to I've always thought, looking back, that that was definitely the right decision.
1: Friendship over money, definitely.
0: Yeah, it probably was the right decision. And it, it, it you get a really nice um, uh, mention on uh, at least the liner notes, I think of the uh, CD and DVD bundle, um, saying that uh, for all intents purposes, you were the heart and soul of early madness, uh, the real go-getter and the doer of things. So that must have been fairly redeeming to to see that. In yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It's, it's, it's really nice to get that that recognition mean, I say you know things had had a that little rift but you know time here was all wounds. and um, yeah I mean I did I did put a lot I did put a lot in in those days I see I had that little motorbike and I was all I was here there and everywhere yeah you know, I, I remember one time um, there was been oh well, what's John do he's up doing anything isn't he you know people didn't understand management and he I was at the time working in the Two-Tone offices in Camden Town above the shoe shop. It's this little tiny, pokey office that the Two-Tone Empire was running from. Um, And I worked in there with the manager. And Lee came along one day and said, right, I want to know what you do. So you can go home now, and I'm going to do your job. Well, okay. And came back at the end of the day, he goes, you can keep
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, good luck. Good luck with that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The phone going left, right, and center, and people wanting this and wanting that, and wanting an answer now, and yeah, it's... Um...
1: And it's all the stuff that nobody actually sees because it's all behind the scenes.
2: Exactly, yes. Yeah. and it, And so, and where it should stay, because the whole thing is trying to make everything run smooth, and, you know, the more it gets noticed, that, that means you aren't doing your job so well.
1: Right. No one wants to see how the sausage gets made, right?
2: Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they're just it sizzling in the pan.
1: There you go. So if we could maybe fast forward a little bit to uh-huh. 1986. The band was basically about to call it quits. They released the single Waiting for the Ghost Train. And they yep. brought, <laughs> brought you back for the music video, which I thought was... Really appropriate, you know. You were there for the beginning, you were there for the end, kind of like bookending this part yeah. of their career. What yeah. was that experience like, uh, being with them as they were making what they thought was going to be their final video?
2: um It was it was just fun. It was always working with the band. It was just fun because there was just always what you don't see on the videos is all the all the the, the banter. Into the, the reacting together um of the band as, as they come up with these ideas that they that they feed into the actually get into the video because they come up with a rough idea of things and obviously for that they had the suits made and they got their little but actually it's only got, when that gets showing that somebody will say hey why don't we do this oh why why don't we try doing this and um well we oh well, how do we do that well we did the step ladder somebody get a step ladder right okay and, it, the, a lot of the stuff comes together actually in the moment of making those videos are incredibly creative events and just absolutely a nightmare for film crew. Yeah, it's a mixture of a lot of preparation and a lot of thought that goes in before, but a lot of riffing. It's, you know, there's, it's, I mean, it's, it's you know, jazz to go back to the earlier the What's it called when, you, when you're just playing a solo and it's, uh Spontaneous. There's a word for it. Um, Improvisation. Well, improvisation. That's it. Yes. Yeah. They improvise, but it's not just they don't just improvise all over the place. It's done on a a very tight set of rules, and the 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 preparations gone into that in order to be able to do that improv. And the same with the Maddest videos. This is, it's. I mean, Lee especially puts a lot of thought into, into some of the ideas. They'll come up to it, but they'll they'll all get together and talk about it and discuss it before come up with ideas, thoughts, um, and then but then on the day, then they start improvising, and 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 you get almost manic energy that can get going. Kind of, and um,
1: sounds like controlled chaos.
2: Controlled chaos. Yes, yes, very much so, and a lot, a huge amount of fun to do. Yeah, they 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 gave me a a character to play for that thing
1: with the mustache
2: <laughs> yeah there was there was this there was this uh, a, a UK um, entertainer a, a variety entertainer who did a lot of television hosting called Bruce Forsyth was a big name one in the UK at the time of the and I was just doing a, a pastiche not impersonation of Brucey but that kind was just so inspired by that type of old school smiley game show host so you know, so so it just sort of throw they'll throw you that as the idea. That's that's the kind of that stuff. Deal, then let you go in, sort your own stuff out to, to make it work and make it happen. So the attach was, was my idea, you know. That was so I was able to put, you know, great. I was able to put something, a little something into it as well. Chested man, A pocket full of posies with a hand rim full of sand ooh, ooh. Waiting for the train that never comes A gut chasing the tumbleweeds across the sandy floor A drift along the platform through the ticket office door, ooh, ooh. Waiting for the train that never comes waiting for the
1: train that never comes so what did you do then after you were no longer working with the band what uh what was what was life like
2: um well we're living with a new baby and uh a, a dog and a canary in a one room apartment then i got some work i did a bit of work actually for Stiff records for a while Doing some A and think that was partly a bit of a, a bit of a payoff kind of thing. I don't know whether that was, whether that was uh, guilt feelings on behalf of the, the boss, but that didn't last. And then I worked for a management company called um, Blackhill. Well, uh, I just got to know these guys, uh, Black Hill Enterprises. They were one of the big things they did. I don't know if you've seen footage of the Rolling Stones playing in Hyde Park to the Brian Jones Memorial gig. And that was that was put on by Black Hill Enterprises. So and they they, they Pink Floyd's manager. Are they were uh they were injuries manager. So they left Pink Floyd by then. But um so they they've been in the business a long time. They they there were a nice couple of guys, Andrew King and Peter Jenner. Um so I worked for them for quite a long time. That was I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I had to clash all the books for a while. So Ian was in and out all the time, Ian Jury, some other different bands. We had um Ingrid Mansfield Alwyn, who's uh, she's a backing singer, she's really good. Uh, who else? Well, can't think. Well, so definitely the clash, and Ian Jury would be the big, the big names that people would know. So um, you
1: did you did continue in a career with uh um music then? I mean in, in, at, in, on the production yeah. side or the management side.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for a while. But then I got I then I went to college and ended up going to, when I was about thirty, went to university, did a degree. Before that though, um whilst, whilst I was working for the General King at Blackhill, um I got divorced and got literally left holding the baby. So I was then juggling single kids with um work and And you know, working in the music business, it's very difficult to do that and have a have be a pair parent like that. Um
1: a lot of odd hours and
2: a lot of odd hours. I was I was I was running around all local luckily I um, I could drop a door off to my mum or one of my, my sisters sometimes, but yeah, you don't like doing that too
1: much. Well, and that wasn't really that common in the 80s to have a single father with, with a child.
2: Very uncommon.
1: Yeah.
2: And I didn't know any other people in my position. Um,
1: so you were smashing uh, smashing gender stereotypes. Good for you. I was, yeah. Good yeah. for you.
2: I knew it But well, it did mean that was one of the reasons I decided to go to college and get out of the music business. So I decided to get out and try and get to something which was even more a house. So I did that.
1: So I gotta ask just personal curiosity, because I'm a college professor, what did you study?
2: I studied modern political history at the University of London.
1: Oh wow. And then yeah. did you did you uh make that into a new career then or
2: uh, no, not well, not directly. I mean Oh okay. Yeah I mean it's not actually not a cool fit history <laughs> of the Australians.
1: <laughs> Thanks for humoring me there. I just, uh, I yeah. was just very No,
2: no, no, no. No, Well, I, well, I mean, well, I, did, I ended up getting a job running a project in schools. It was a project for children that children did. Oh. And to try and keep them in school.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
2: It was actually, it was an American import from, um, originally, uh, Massachusetts. By the way, they developed the program. Uh, and we kind of brought it in and, we're piloting it in, in schools. Um, so I've worked with a lot of 15-year-olds. That was a lot of fun.
1: But more importantly, it sounds like that you made a difference in, in some of their lives, which is really, I, really good.
2: I do believe I did. I did. I think I definitely made a difference um, in some lives. I mean, there's one kid I particularly remember. Um, and we, we were running this project in his school, Um and they would, it was like a peer group that he built up uh, within the school. And they had they could decide for themselves things that they wanted to go camping, they wanted to go to a theme park. So, you know, but it was too far for a day trip. So, well, we couldn't afford to land um, a hotel, but we could afford to go camping. So we decided to sit. Get some tents. We managed to borrow some tents, but we needed we needed money for the petrol and and to get into the park and then we try to raise money and there was some school funds and it needed to approach headmaster and ask if they could have access to some of these school funds to go towards their trip. Uh, and so I suggested they said, "Oh, you go and ask. uh it's your it's your thing. You, you have to ask." This this young kid Douglas, he was bright bright lad. I often wonder what happened to him, but I, I really hope he did well. But he was saying, no, I couldn't ask the headmaster. He doesn't like me. Well you know, Douglas, it doesn't matter. I like and said, so I don't like him. So, yeah, but you know, it's not about whether someone likes you or not. You can still show basic respect towards somebody. He's got something you want and he and you can you can ask him. You don't it doesn't matter. Uh, after a bit of chatting this through, he he did. He went he went ahead this young this young kid to sort of shine. You know, he had a bit of bravado, but you could tell in the leaf he was he was shiny. But he went and and made his appointment with the headmaster. Went in, and got treated with the respect that he earned by making that, and came back and he said he'd give us money, but he wants us to do something for him. What we well, didn't say. So. We had to come up with something which we could do for the oh. school to get the money. Some, so the headmaster they said this was a really great headmaster. This guy was a was a star. I mean, he was, he was this was a guy who would be at the breakfast club serving up the breakfast to the kids. You know, he was he was a hands on guy. So we came up with an idea of, of how we could do something for the school. One well, of the kids said, "Well, what about the toilets above the gym, they they are horrible. They really need painting." So we offered. <laughs> A pain. Wow. <laughs> so they 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 said they'd offer to do it, and the headmaster, Dad, that sounds a deal to me. So um, that's what they did, and we got the money. We got the money. We went on our camping trip, and we went to up We went to the theme park.
1: That's fantastic. I
2: said. A- <laughs> Naughty boys in nasty schools. Headmasters breaking all the rules having fun, and playing pool, smashing up the wood run All the teachers in the pub, passing man a ready rub, trying not to So, you know that, that was we, we definitely had a rapprochement I mean after after I started looking after a daughter on my own he definitely was able to sort of voice be proud of me for doing that and that sort of made a big a big difference so once once you can actually have that adult conversation with your own parents you start to understand well oh, this is what it's about I mean this is what growing up is this is how we grow up it's it's inside yeah. I took those took those into that job.
0: That yes, that old chestnut. You, know, you can't believe how stupid your parents were until you were a parent.
2: Yeah, that's it. That's it.
0: So what what did you do musically in the other parts of your life?
2: Well, for for, for a little while, I did some. Um, I did write some songs with a friend. They never we never really got much with it. But yeah, you know, we had fun doing it. We demoed a few, but we, we kind of had this idea that maybe we could become the new Holland Dozier Holland, but um, it's 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 uh, it's a difficult world to break into the subway world. And you know, I say I had a small baby, life kind of takes over, but then I went along to I did get very much involved with a band called the Skiff Scats, well, if you come across them,
0: uh-huh.
1: interesting.
2: They, they, they were uh, another friend of ours, Tony, who was worked on, a, on, a, on a, in one of the big parks in London, perhaps the Teeth, Which is a very big wild area. It's, it's a park which is it's never been. It's an area which has never been cultivated. It's always so. Victorians kind of preserved it. as this area where it's very hilly and woods everywhere and streams. It's, it's a little bit of the countryside in the middle of London. Um, and the guys worked there, and they, you know, lunch breaks just used to start playing. One of the guys had a banjo; they taught themselves to play, and they uh, so they they were playing. It's a bluegrass and that. And
1: I was going to ask, they look like a skiffle band from that album cover.
2: Skiffle—that's just they were, yeah, very much a skiffle band. Um, and we and we could be, did really. be started playing. I started joining in with them very early days. Carl and Lee played along with them. Oh wow! joined them up on stage playing percussion. But he got he they kind of stopped doing it because the, they were getting too many madness bands coming on just, just to see Carl and Lee and not really into the band and it's um and they they felt it was overshadowing the efforts that the other guys were making. So they kind of pulled back and I kind of stepped into um Carl's shoes on that one really and took up playing the washboard. And bought myself a for a bunch of thin and started learning that, and we played. Yeah, we played some some some, some really good stuff. There's that like, and uh, we had a single out called um, "Cripple Creep which is an old blue uh, rice number. It's quite well known. A little sort of bit of a scene going, um, I wish the Pokes were a part of, they were, um, they were kind of peripheral to that. But this, this sort of new wave of, of folky stuff coming up, and I had played with the Pokes at this point as well. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, well, because the, the, I mean, my daughter's mother had played in the band with Shane McGowan. And so I got to know them and I did a bit of managing with their bands for a while. Which stopped when we when we split up. But then I um, had a, I was in 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 a bar meeting with Shane and some of the guys and Carter Reidon, who's um, the bass player, she goes, Oh, can I borrow your drum kit? Oh, why? Because oh, 'cause I'm playing the drums and well I could I could bring my drum kit along, but I'm coming with it. So and <laughs> So that's how I ended up playing the bass rather than the drums for the punks. So I, I played drums for the punks for the first few months. There was this sort uh, of question, Jim, the banjo player, he said, you know, you've got to put more into this. You know, we need to build our house more. We get, we're serious about this. We're going places. And uh, again, single parent, you can't, you think, well, mm, I can't do it. I can't, I've got, there's a choice here, and, and it's really it's not a choice. So I just said I I can't I can't in all fairness I can't give you what you need. So I bowed out gracefully from that.
1: Were you on any of their recordings, or was this... oh
2: no no this this is okay. when we were playing the pubs of King's Cross, the really seedy days. All right. <laughs> it was uh, it was good, a lot of good fun. It was a lot of hard drinking. But, um...
1: <laughs> the stories we've heard about Shane are legendary. So.
2: Yeah, they're 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 only half of the reality. It's believe <laughs> me. So yeah, well, yeah, I, I played them. So and and there was um, there's a band called the Men. They couldn't hang. Um, so my ex my ex wife then she played with them for a while. Um, and there's a few other bands that were about playing different types of folk music and that. And it was it a nice little scene. It's all acoustic music acoustic instruments we did we did all over we, we, we went all over the place with that um always made enough money to cover costs and then after a bit we just decided to stop as we realized we, 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 we it felt like we were kind of re- to regain going back around again and so it was the way we've got all we can out of this we squeezed this 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 lemon so we, we it was yeah we had a meeting we just all we just all just sort of looked at each other and like, do you want to stop yeah that's and that was an end of that um, but it was it was a great fun while we did it, it really was um, we had a little thing going when when we played the guys would we bring along a Debbie John and they used to bring this lethal wine they grow vegetables in their garden anything they grew they turn it into wine and it was always very very strong Um. And they so they totally fill it up and then we hand it out to the audience. So right, we're going to play this song now, and we're going to see how fast we can play it. And you've got to see if you can finish that before we finish the song, which is a really neat trick early on in the set because suddenly all the people down the front are kind of getting married, and so and then they're, they're dancing around a lot more for the rest of the set. Yeah, I just lots of little things like that. We had we had a, a guy from um, played fiddle with us, Cedric. Uh, Self-described south of the Mason Dixie, he, he was our ringer. He was a re- the real deal. Um, I think it, I think it was Alabama He was strong. Anyway, he he really did play. I remember that everyone could play. Was it, it was it was one of the most musically adroit bands I played in. There are better musicians in madness or the <laughs> I, I don't know. Wow! But you know, it's it's. Uh, God, that's what music's about. It's blast enjoying what yeah, you're doing in the moment.
1: What you got, Polly?
0: I got um, I got nothing.
1: W- what is that? Get well.
2: I, that's, get um, crabs. That's
1: what I, get crabs. I was
0: wondering if you were going to bring that up.
2: Get crabs. What is get? Cr- okay, okay. I right, get crabs. Um, so, I'm, jump jump forward a few years, and I moved to Scotland to be with my current partner. Uh, she, she lives in Edinburgh, so that's where I live now, and uh, working with the HHS in uh, community mental health services. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing now, and to keep myself entertained, of um, I joined a band. They asked me to join, and they're they're a surf band, and because I was crabs, so this is our, this is our single that we recorded, get crabs. <laughs> songs we write ourselves available on band camp
0: and of course you've uh made at least one appearance at house of fun
2: we did yes i i it's on youtube that appearance i'm very proud of it. i'm uh, I, yeah. I just mentioned i'm back on the drums so i've come quite right, full circle right around now and and loving being back i
0: I'll, I'll have you know i was lucky enough to get a couple of minutes in i was in between running around at house of fun but was able to catch you and i thought oh, it wow. was a very interesting take on surf and i enjoyed yep. the few minutes i was able to get in there our, our mutual friend uh john young oh yeah i yeah. i've got to go see you and yep. uh it was lovely to to know that you were there
2: yeah yeah well, there's, there's a re- actually if you look on YouTube, we've been at a place called the Leith Depot. Um, Leith being a part of Edinburgh, and the Leith Depot is a little venue, and we did a gig there recently, which has got some good good tracks on that. So, uh, and like you say, it's our own take on surf. We're not we're not to slavishly following. Um, it's all about I like that. Same with the skiff scats. We, we weren't into following, and with the pokes, again, you can you can play it how the canon plays it, or you can do your own thing. And my take has always been, look, if you work and practice Sonny, you can play it exactly like the record. Just play the record. <laughs> I mean, why bother? Right, but what's all the that. point? Yeah. Yeah. Just play the record. It's there already. Um, so we, we yeah, do our own thing, and I've always wanted to have that. Um, a unique stamp, I guess, on, on the music. So with Madness with the Scar. You know, they weren't—they were never into sort of sounding exactly like the 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 the, the, the Kingston Studio bands that laid down the original stuff because you know that's all there. Um, in a way, that you know, it's, as in in the first single, Prince—that's what Lee was kind of saying. It's like you know, if you really want it, this is there to listen to. This is a nice tribute, and um, and it's part of what we have. But it's you know, really, it it's it's going to be our own unique stamp on it. And I why it's important music to to do that.
0: That it is, and you've certainly left your stamp. I think all of Madness Phantom owes you a debt of gratitude.
2: Yeah, well, I like to think that my early days drumming sort of laid down a certain groove that survived.
0: And that it was. Through,
2: Through it.
1: And then the other thing I've just, I, I, I need to hear it from you. I mean, we the stories are legendary, but how did you get the name Bed and Breakfast Man?
2: Well, early days when we were uh, rehearsed when I was playing the drums, and we'd rehearse over. We've had even before, even before I spent when I was started playing guitar. Um, we rehearsed over in NW5 or probably stay over at Chris's because you know it's kind of late to get back, and it's easy just go and stay. And uh, I'd stay on his for it. and that's basically it. Yeah, with yeah, me and Cole, we used to, we used to go out um, and, and around the area, we'd go out and look to me how frames and we go out to a pub mm-hmm. and leak. There we go to a party altars and then there'd be no, the, the underground had finished and there's no buses, in. it's a long walk home. Uh, we used to sleep in people's cars back in the day. The people didn't lock their cars wow. so much, and you could just open the car and get in the back seat and stretch out. We'd fight over who was in the back and the front because, of course, in in, in the UK, most cars are stick shift.
1: Oh, well, that's so, painful.
2: If you're in the front seat that's uh so we we try and look for automatics we try and get an automatic if we could um so yeah actually more than more, uh, when i did sleep on chris's sofa we were all likely to be found sleeping in the back of somebody's car
1: well fantastic thank you so much for sitting down with us and chatting john this has really been cool
2: absolute absolute pleasure larry it It's been great to meet you Really, the house likewise
1: Thanks so much, John.
2: Okay. And, uh, yeah. All right. Take care. Take you care. too. Have and a good
0: night. Duke, take care. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Bye now.
0: Oh, that was the bed and breakfast man.
1: What did you think, Polly?
0: Well, the man has a lot of stories, and so I was familiar with the fact that he still continued to work with stiff records a little bit. Did not know of his association with the Pogues.
1: No, I that didn't was either. Really cool. Yeah. And I didn't know about these other bands like Crabs. Uh, I didn't know about any of that. So that was really kind of cool. We get exposed to some new music here.
0: Yeah. yeah. Guy with long stories.
1: I hope that, and I know I've said this about some of our other guests, but I really hope that John sits down and writes a memoir at some point because he must really have, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. He must really have some interesting stories, not just about the time with madness, although I think that probably is a whole volume in and of itself. But um, you know, I I would I'd love to read more.
0: Yeah, same here. I would love to know more about the guy. Uh very thankful for the amount of time he was able to give us. And uh yeah, fantastic
1: episode. And he was a very, very gracious guest, I have to say too. He was very, very thoughtful. So for the closing song today. I have something that I only just became aware of, but I think maybe you were aware of it a little longer than I was. And that is the Lockdown All-Stars. That is our super group, if you will, that our friend Mr. Skurf helped put together. The Lockdown All-Stars featuring Chris Forman and also Big Jim Paterson, who is of uh, Dexie's Midnight Runners, if I believe. Yeah? Yeah. And... So the Specialized Project, we've talked about them before. They're the UK Cancer Charity. And back on October 31st of last year, they put out a four CD album called My Way. And it's basically Scott covers of not just it. it, they're, They're calling it the Rat Pack, but it's more than just the original five Rat Pack. They were doing a lot of different standards from, you know, like a lot of the Vegas Lounge Acts and stuff like that. And this is a cover of Buona Serra, which was made famous by Louis Prima in the 50s. As you know, Polly, I'm Italian on my mother's side, and I adore Louis Prima. So I heard this for the first time today. I know some of our listeners have probably heard it before. But this is the Lockdown All-Stars featuring Chris Foreman and Big Jim Paterson with their cover of Buona Serra. Wishing you a buona sera, listeners. It's a goodbye from me,
0: and that's a goodbye from me. Go get a beer, stateside madness.
2: Señorita, it is time to say goodnight to When I say Senorita Señorina